today, uh, it's kind of interesting, I, I did not plan it this way, but, but uh, I was going to talk just a little bit about the end of Luke chapter 2. We, we obviously deal with Luke chapter 2 a lot through the Christmas season, the account of, of Jesus' birth, and then it kind of just closes out, um, it closes out really with a dedication of Jesus to, to the Lord in the temple. We see that uh, Joseph and Mary, they're, they're Jews and they're devout they're practicing uh, the things that they're uh, called to do. And so we see that played out. We're going to start in verse 21 this morning of chapter 2. This basically closes out at the end of, of, of Jesus' birth and of that night. And then, and then it says at the, at, the, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So at eight days, they, they bring Jesus and they bring him to the temple as the he's, the, he's the firstborn male child. And so they bring him there to be circumcised. And also there's no mention here, but that, but that as a, a firstborn male child, that they would actually really need to bring a lamb as well uh, for a sacrifice. But there is no mention of that here. And that's totally um, on purpose because what we're going to look into and we're going to see is that Jesus, he is the lamb. Uh, there is no lamb, there is no substitutionary atonement for Jesus because he is the one who will bring that substitutionary atonement uh, to the world. His name is given is Jesus, and there's mention given of that, and Jesus is, uh, the Hebrew for Jesus ultimately means God saves. And, and, and so his name is God saves. Okay, verse 22, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when Jesus' parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation of the, to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And, and, and so basically we get this account of Jesus's baby dedication and how they would have went about that. Um, and, and again, 
at the eighth day, uh, he would have been brought to be circumcised, and also, too, that the firstborn uh, son needed to be redeemed. And, and so this whole concept of being the firstborn is really a, a big, big deal biblically when we, when we look at this. Colossians 1, 15 through 18, it says this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so it's this, it's this picture, and as it names Jesus as the firstborn, he is, at this point, he is actually literally the firstborn. But, but the idea of really being firstborn or the firstborn, is, is, it's more of an idea of status many times than it is about um, just actual order or numerical kind of a, a, a deal. The, the, the thing right here where it says that he's the firstborn of all creation in verse 15 is a place where the cults really grab a hold of this idea. And I want to talk about that a second. The, the, many of the cults, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, the uh, Mormon church, they, they will say that basically that, that Jesus, because he was the firstborn of creation, that, that God first created Jesus and then Jesus created all things, okay? So, so they don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that Jesus is eternal and, and that his existence was, has been for all eternity past. They believe that Jesus is a created being and that he's the, that's why he's named as the firstborn here. This is false. This is not the truth. It's not what God is trying to convey here to us. As a matter of fact, verse 16 is going to refute that. It says, for by him all things were created. So if he's a created being, and then he created, right, then that means he didn't create all things. So for him to have created all things means that Jesus had to be eternal, and he's the eternal uh, son of God, the, the, the second person in the Trinity, the triune God. And verse 15 tells us that he is the image of of the invisible God. And so now we're, we're back in the Old Testament times, you couldn't see God or you would die. Now they're recognizing this is a call, this is a, this is a proclamation of the divinity of Jesus, that he is God. Not that he's just created in the image of God like we are, but, but that when we see God, we, when we see Jesus, we are seeing God, that he is God. He is Emmanuel, which is laid out for us in the book of Isaiah, that he would be called Emmanuel or God with us. He is the God who has laid down his kingship, all of his riches, all of the inheritance, everything that he had, he laid it all down and he entered into time, space, and history to deal with a human problem, which was sin. And so the, the firstborn in, in all of these things, the, the firstborn, this goes all the way back even to the idea of, of Abraham. And Abraham begins this place where, where God begins to kind of put a reversal on the way that people tend to do things. You see, see, Isaac is the one who is offered in this story, but Isaac isn't actually the firstborn of Abraham. The firstborn is actually Ishmael. But what we're going to see is that God continually takes what we would do and kind of our order of things and, and kind of undoes it. We're going to see here that it's Isaac and not Ishmael 
that, that, that is offered and given the status of, of being the, 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 the son of, of hope and, and a future. You see, this is the thing that the firstborn represented. The firstborn represented everything about a hope and a future. It was everything about the family and the future of that family because in the patriarchal system that they had going, the firstborn was going to be the one who was going to become the leader of the family. He was going to be groomed. He was going to receive a double portion so that he might provide for the needs of the family. You see, the idea of the firstborn represented the hope of the family um, going forward. Um, we see here, though, that, that, again, that it's not Ishmael that is given the favor. It is Isaac. We'll see that Manasseh is given the favor, that, that, uh, that Jacob crosses his hands with the blessing, and, the, and Manasseh is given the favor over Ephraim. We see, uh, we see that Joseph, the youngest son, is given it over his older brothers. We see that David is given preference over his older brothers. We see all the time that God is, God is always doing this upside-down and backwards thing. He talks about this idea of that the last shall be the first, right? And, and, and ultimately, there's a lot of spiritual lessons that we can get out of that. But, but we have to understand, too, that as this goes back a long time in this idea of the firstborn, the idea of the redemption of the firstborn is, is it's basically the gospel. It's, it's God telling the gospel from the very first book. The, the whole of the Bible tells us the story of Jesus, and it, and it lays out God's plan of redemption for humanity. And it starts from the very first book, and there's this amazing continuity. It's one of the amazing things that, that, that sets the Bible apart from any other thing. See, there's no other book like it that is written over thousands of years that contains 40-some authors that, that has the continuity and, and the story that, that the Bible lays out for us. So we see this picture, and sometimes we're really, we're really troubled by this story of Abraham, right? Where, where God tells Abraham to go and take your only son, the one that you love, and offer him there as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And, and we're like, whoa. I mean, that's just, that is heavy, right? You start thinking, you're like, what is with this God? And why would God even ask that? And, and, and I think personally that this, this account does for us is it, it personalizes this account for us. It takes us into a place where we have to, where we do that. We're like, whoa, wait a minute. I, God, don't ask me to do that. I can't do that. And it gives a very fresh understanding and a new meaning to John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have life eternal. You see, we begin to understand that it cost God something. Our redemption cost God something. But what did God basically do in this account was that he stopped Abraham. He said, no, wait, don't slay your son. See, it was never God's intent that Abraham would have to offer his son. God always had the plan that it would be his son that would be offered on our behalf. And what happened was that there was an atonement, there was a substitution that was given for, uh, for Isaac to Abraham. There was a ram that was caught in the thicket, and it became, became then the sacrifice. And so from that point on, the Jewish people are looking forward to the one who would be the sacrifice, the one who would be the completion of it, the one who would be the perfect sacrifice who would take away the sin of the world. If you think about it kind of like this, I like analogies. They help me, and some of you will get tired of hearing them, but other people haven't heard them, so, so and, and they're, they're, they can't wait, so that's the thing. If you ever got yourself in trouble with a credit card, 
and you got the balance way up there, and you're looking, at, you're like, there's no way. And you look at the statement, and you're like, oh, there is a way. <laughs> Dang, I did buy all that stuff. Anyway, um, and, and you get that thing way up there, right? And now you're going, oh, my gosh. But what the credit card company does is they said, okay, here, if you pay this minimal, the minimum payment, if you just keep the minimum, you just pay the minimum payment, it keeps the account open. All that really does is it keeps the account from going into default. The, the, basically, the principle still stays the same because what you're dealing with is generally just the interest for the, the most part, uh, but, but it keeps the account open. And, and so that's what the sacrificial system did, which is what the Jewish people did, this idea of, of, of giving a ram or a lamb in place. Was this, it was imagery. It was, it was a picture of, of what ultimately Jesus would accomplish. And it kept the account open. It was like paying the minimum payment. It didn't deal with the, uh, it, it didn't deal with the, with the debt that was owed. It didn't deal with the principle. It just kept the account open. So as long as you pay that minimum payment, the account stays open, right? You quit paying that minimum payment, the account closes. But the people of Israel, as they offered these sacrifices, it kept the account open until when Jesus would come ultimately, and he would be the one who would be that atoning sacrifice, that substitutionary atonement that comes and that takes the place. And when he comes, he eradicates the debt. Now the debt is gone, and that account is, is given to you and I. So, so where we let stand guilty, and we are... Uh, we're guilty of the sin that we've all committed in this place. You see, Jesus has come and he's eradicated that debt and he's made possible a relationship for us between us and a holy and perfect God. You see, if you, if you, you know, how does he do that? Well, well, he does that, A, because he's God and this is the meaning, this is the reason that he came into the world as a human being is because he had to deal with the human problem of sin. So he came and he lived a perfect life so that that life could be substituted for ours, so that it might redeem us, so that we might be redeemed. And, and this picture of being redeemed is, is this, this thing that God is doing for us. It's not just about the atonement, but it's about the redemption of our very character and our being and who we are. It's, it's about becoming not just forgive, forgiven, but it's about becoming a brand new creation. It's about the Holy Spirit coming and living inside of us. It's about a second birth. See, all of us are born once into the flesh, and we need to be reborn. We need to be born again, right? All the crazy Christians that talk about being born again. You have to be born again into the Spirit. Your spirit has to become alive. And the only way that our spirit becomes alive is when our sin debt is paid, and, and we are now it, 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 that, that all of that debt and all of that problem that is an issue in our relationship between us and God is now cleared out of the way. And so Jesus, as the firstborn, he doesn't need a lamb to substitute for him. He is the lamb. He is the one who has come to fulfill everything about the Old Testament sacrificial system. See, to be redeemed means to be literally bought back. It means, uh, it, it means that you've been purchased back. It means something else owned you, and now you've been bought by the one that ought to own you, kind of a thing. So, so, so you could go and you can redeem a coupon, right? You get a coupon, and it's $10 off of something. Well, you know, I mean, try this if you want to, but just go to the cashier sometime, throw the $10 coupon on the thing, and say, okay, just give me the 10 bucks, Right? doesn't work that way, right? 
The, the, the manufacturer is the one who is going to redeem that. The, the, the store is going to take that, and it becomes kind of this legal transaction where now the store takes that, they give you $15 off, but now the manufacturer is going to pay that debt back to the store. You see, it's literally a legal transaction that we're talking about when we talk about the idea of being redeemed. That, that we're being redeemed, that, that, that we are taken and, and we are brought back into really the, the place that we were always intended to be. You see, because you and I were never intended to walk independently apart from a relationship with God. We were created for a relationship with God. And, and, and so God has done everything so that that peace might be brought back in and that we might... Be at peace with God. And so Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. That word trouble there means literally has been taken back from the hand of the enemy. See, and this is something that we really kind of get to get hold of as the church, and something we don't really necessarily want to talk about a lot of times, but. Um, but, but the, heaven is not our default destination. We tend to think that, but that is not what the Bible teaches. We think this way. We think, okay, we're born and we're good and we're innocent, and, and then we start our lives out. And, and basically, if we're pretty good people, we don't do too much horrible stuff, we get to go to heaven, okay? That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that heaven is our default destination, the Bible teaches that hell is our default destination. Separation from a holy and perfect God is, is where we, this is why we must be born again. This is why there's a call for, for an urgency for Christians to recognize that, that, that the good people out in the world out there are not, their, their, their default destination is not heaven. There's one way into heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus makes it clear. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. See, this is what the Bible teaches. This isn't what Tri is up here, um, you know, spouting off about and running his mouth about. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. And Jesus taught very clearly about hell and about the reality of hell. See, we don't want to talk about this, but when we understand where our destination was, what our, what our, where we were headed, it makes all the more beautiful the reality of this redemption that you and I have been purchased out of that, that, that God has done everything, that he literally purchased you and I with his own blood. Ephesians 1 through 7, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It's grace. It's simply His favor that we look to. Yeah, we take the faith that God gives us and everyone lives by faith. Everyone places their faith in something. Even an atheist has a belief system. They just believe there is no God, but they take the faith that God gave them and they put that faith into a belief system. And that belief system then dictates how you live your life. What you believe dictates what the actions are that come out of your life. And, and so, but, but we take the faith that God gives us, and when we place that faith in Jesus, then his grace or his favor that we don't deserve covers us. 
And we are atoned, we are covered or forgiven for our sins. But it doesn't stop there, church. This is something that we've got to get a hold of and we've got to understand this for the world out there. The world has a lot of struggles right now and always has. But we need to begin to tell the world and have this message that it's not just about forgiveness, it's about new creation. It's about being made new. It's about life looking completely different than it used to look. It's about being challenged in our ethics and how we're living our life and what we're doing. And it's about the Holy Spirit beginning to reorganize our thoughts. The idea of repenting is to begin to agree with God in our mind that the things of God are right and they're true and that they're given to us for our goodness, not just individually, but also for a society. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's an interesting concept here. But basically, see, God would be unjust if he poured his wrath out upon Jesus who had no sin. Unless there was a clause, and that clause was this, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. At the point in time that the Romans hung Jesus upon the cross when he was hung upon a tree. Now, God can rightly pour his wrath out on Jesus, and this is what happened. It says that Jesus bore in himself the sins of the whole world, and then the wrath of God is poured out upon him. This is why Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time ever, there is aloneness. The Father has now turned his back on him. Why? Because he's become the curse on our behalf. He's become the curse so that we might have life in him. And what happens is that he dies and he puts that to death. And then because he's raised on the third day, we see that he is justified. And we understand as as we look back there when it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's our hope and it's our understanding that because he was raised from the dead, so we too one day will be raised from the dead when we put our faith in him. This is the gospel and it's all throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, you were bought with a price. And, And Peter tells us that it wasn't a cheap price either. It wasn't of temporal things like silver and gold. It was by the precious blood of Jesus. And he says, do not become bondservants or slaves to men. Don't sell yourself out for the cheap seats. Don't, 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 don't eat out of the dumpster when you've been invited into the five-star restaurant. Have a higher vision. This is what God is calling us to. God isn't just calling us to understand that there's a bunch of rules to follow or to get really religious and do a lot of religious stuff. God is calling us to understand that because of this redemptive work that he's done in our lives, that he's calling us into a higher vision of life, a higher, a higher understanding of what this is all about. One day at that time, we're going to be completely and totally redeemed. And the very sin nature even that lives in us that we can't even imagine actually living life without is going to be gone. And that's going to be an amazing time. I'm looking very much forward to that. So this idea of this firstborn and the redemption, you see, you see, the firstborn son had to be redeemed. He had to have a lamb that was offered in his place. He was bought back. And in that buying back, there was the hope for the future. Again, Jesus becomes that 
John the Baptist proclaims him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's that one who comes, and where the bullet was coming right for you and me, he steps in front of it, and he takes it on our behalf so that we might live. We'll finish this up here. Um, Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year to the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Anybody ever lost their kid before? Well, you're you're in good company. Um, after three days, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the, the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So this is the account, and this is really interesting because from the birth of Jesus until John the Baptist is chapter 3 here in Luke, this is kind of all we get of Jesus' life kind of in between those places. There's this dedication, um, this idea, the firstborn, um, uh, the, the blessing, the, the, the things, the, you know, uh, these guys offering their things. And then this, this thing where Jesus is just gone, like they came to the Passover and then they left. And what happened was that they thought Jesus was with the other family. And, and I think that that shows a couple things. I think one thing that that shows is that Jesus was trustworthy. Like, like they didn't have to go and be like, uh, you know, if you got a kid and you know they're going to be gone or something, you know, you make sure that they're... But if you have a kid and you know that they're always there with us because Jesus is perfect, right? He's always doing the right thing. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, so, so you go and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, He's not back here with his cousins. He's not back here uh, with his family. You know, what, what's up? This is, seems to be out of place for Jesus. And, and it says that Jesus actually let them leave. And so I guess there's, there's a reason in this. He, he's not being malicious. malicious. What am I trying to say? Malicious. Thank you. I, boy, I just spun my brain there. Um, and, and, and he's, you know, he's, he, he's not sinning, uh, but he's let them go. And it seems to be pretty uncharacteristic of Jesus. So I think that what happens then is they were a day out, it says. So they were one day out, one day getting back to Jerusalem, long walk. They're upset. And then they spent the next day looking for him. So that's the third day. So he's gone three days. Now he's gone three days. Now this is significant again, right? Because there's this distress and there's this struggle in the midst of him being gone for three days. I think that we, we struggle a lot sometimes with even the death of, of, of Jesus. We think about Ever think about that? Like, how did God die? How did God die? Well, I think it's when we think of it from our perspective, we 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 would we would really struggle with that. But but you see, death for us, for us on this side of things, death just seems to be this thing that that just ends it and it's over and it's done. But but from the other side, death isn't like that. As a matter of fact, when Jesus died, 
he, he went into the, the, the next realm. It, it, it says that, you know, some say that he descended into Hades and, 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 and proclaimed a message and then came back up. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he went and offered uh, before the mercy seat, uh, the, the sacrifice in the heavenly realms, not of, of his own blood, not of the blood of bulls and goats. And, and, and so Jesus actually in his death is, is active on the other side of things. We know that uh, Paul tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so for us, this idea of death is this, is, is this final thing where it just seems like, you know, the, the physical part of somebody's body is just over, right? And, and we're like, wow, and it's just done. But, but there's more to this story, right? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and there's things that are going on. And, and, and so in the sense, yes, he's gone. And so why does he even come back to get the body? Well, the only reason he comes back to be resurrected is to show us that, yeah, we too have that hope of being resurrected from the dead one day. That one day, you and I will stand on this earth in resurrected bodies and we will proclaim that he is right and that he is good and that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords and everything about this was right. So they, 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 they're wandering around, and they, they, they go for three days, and finally they find him, and he's sitting uh, at the temple there, and he's talking to the rabbis there. And it says some interesting things. It says that he is sitting under teaching, he is listening, he's asking questions, and he's also giving answers. And I think that's a great uh, model for us uh, as, as God's people, too. Are, are we sitting under some teaching? Are we, are we in that process? Are we discipleship process? Are we, do we both have somebody sitting under us and are we sitting under someone to receive some teaching? Are we listening? Are we listening? Do we have ears to hear? Jesus talked about that a lot. We all got ears, but do we have ears to hear? Are we listening? Are we asking questions? And are we participating in this whole process? And are we also giving answers? Because I think that's another part of the participation in a relationship like that. You ask, you ask this thing, we say, well, well, how is it that God, oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me just back up really quick to this redemption thing, because it answers one more question for us. Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from where? From every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. This is important for us to understand because many times we and the world have this question, what about those who haven't heard? What about those who are way out there and never heard about it? Well, um, God is right. Here's the first thing. God is just, and he is going to act justly, and he's going to do this just right. And there are some principles out there that you can throw around and you can kind of reason with that, that, that would say some different things that, that some of this stuff is based on an understanding and knowledge to, to him who knows more, more is expected. To him who knows less, there's less. But at the end of the day, God is supernatural, and God wants a relationship with all of those people worse than you want to see one with them. But it says that there are people that are gathered from every tribe, every language, every people group, and every nation, that there is nobody who does not have representation in heaven. There is nobody who is left behind just outside of this deal who had no hope and just couldn't get there. It appears to me that it says everyone. Not, not everyone. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't say everyone is going to heaven. It says that there will be representation in heaven from every people group 
Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Okay, sorry, oops. Now I gotta go backwards. Philippians 2, 6 through 7. How is it that Jesus would have to learn? Uh, for one thing, they, they, they came up to him and they must have been looking everywhere except the temple because he just says, look, I'm, you should have known. You should have known where I was gonna be. Like of all the places you were looking, you were looking over here at the ice cream shop and you were looking over here at wherever. You should have known where I was gonna be. I was gonna be in my, in my father's house. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 though, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is another place where God just, he, he, just, he just turns the whole thing upside down and backwards. You see, where we, where we think that it's all about power, it's about attaining to power, it's about power and privilege and status and different things like that. that see, the God, the God isn't like that. God leaves behind his power, his status, his position, his kingship. He's the, he's the highest that there is. He's the creator of all things, but yet he humbles himself and he empties himself of his divinity. What Jesus did when he came was that he emptied himself of his own divine power and he walked under the power of the Holy Spirit. He walked in unison with the Holy Spirit the same way that believers today are able to walk. We're able to walk. Now, he did it without sin, and certainly he, he displayed divine attributes and miraculous things, and he did all kinds of things, but it says that he, he emptied himself. It's, it's called the kenosis. It's, it's, it's the pouring out of himself. You see, he went from, from the king to God, the creator of the universe, to, to becoming like a man, and, and then not just like a man, but it says like a slave, and then not just like any slave, but a slave who's to be crucified, the lowest form of, or the, the worst form of, of capital punishment that the Romans had. You see, he continually was taking himself down, and we are continually thinking about trying to get up higher. And he, and he turns out all around. You see, Jesus begins to tell us different things, and, and, and the Bible tells us different things, you know, like, like that honestly powered power exercise like that, it doesn't really work. You can try to exercise power over other people or other things, or, and you can build armies and you can conquer people, but, but it doesn't solve the problem of war. You, you, might, you might enter into periods of peace because, because you have power and force that, that people are afraid of and you're able to intimidate with that, but it doesn't solve the problem of war. It doesn't bring peace. Two people that are doing this, the, uh, until somebody, as long as you're doing this, it, it doesn't solve anything. Power struggles are only solved by power. Unfortunately, our political system, we're, we're trapped in, in power struggles right now, right? But, but, but see, a power struggle isn't going to really solve anything. What happens is that when people exert power over other people and they force things to happen, it just builds resentment and anger and frustration and all of that stuff. And so then those people just kind of go underground until they figure out how to have some power of their own that they might exert back against the other people. It's a, it's a back and forth kind of a thing. But you see, Jesus didn't approach it like that for us. He didn't come to exert power over us. He humbled himself and he became the lowest and then he gave himself humbly without even opening his mouth at the cross so that you and I could have life. And now he calls us as Christians to really begin to walk 
in this way of, of humility, of, of understanding that there's a power that comes in, not in conquering over others, not in exercising power over them or principles or, or whatever, uh, by surrendering ourselves, by loving the world, by, by loving in truth and, and, and really just walking this out. It's, it's the way that, that change comes. It's the way that authentic change comes. It's, there's something about someone who, who humbles themselves in your presence, and it, it, it takes defenses down. It, it lowers the defenses, and it opens up the door for reconciliation, and it opens up the door for, for new things. I want to read to you really quick. See, this is, that's it. That's, that's all we get out of, the, out of the account of Jesus' life up until he start, begins his ministry at about 30 years old. That's, that's all we're told. We don't really understand much more about it than this. And, and I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say to you something like this, well, what about the gospel of Thomas? Why isn't that in the Bible? That was taken out of the Bible, and that's, you know, and there's, there's, there's book of Enoch and Thomas and some of these other, go- and, and I'm about to show you right now why it's not in the Bible. It's because the book of Thomas doesn't belong in the Bible. For one thing, the, the, the book of Thomas was, was the earliest manuscripts of the, of the gospel of Thomas are, are, are a couple of hundred years after the death of Jesus. The gospels are, are, are within 10 to 15 years, roughly, 20 years maybe, all of them before probably 70 AD, easily, no doubt about it. Um, but listen to this. This is, a, this is an excerpt about Jesus from the gospel of Thomas, okay? When this boy Jesus was five, and, and this is where legendary stuff comes in. You see, when, when, you, when you don't have accounts until hundreds of years after an event, you get legend. That's what you get. You get legendary accounts. When you get them really close to the event, you get eyewitness accounts, which is what the Bible gives us. When the boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a brook. And he gathered together into pools the water that flowed by and made it at once clean and commanded it by his word alone. But the son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph, and he took a branch of a willow, and with it dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged and said to him, you insolent, godless dunderhead, what harm did the pools of water do to you? See, now you also shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately that lad withered up completely. And Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. But the parents of him, now the parents are coming over because they're ticked. The the parents of him who was withered took him away, bewailing his youth, and brought him to Joseph and reproached him. What a child you have who does such things. After this again, he went through the village, this is Jesus, and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated and said to him, you shall not go further on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. But someone, but some... What took place said, from where does this child spring since every word is an, is an accomplished deed? You see why the Gospel of Thomas isn't in the Bible? Because it doesn't agree with anything about the nature and the character of, of who Jesus is. He's a five, it says he's a five-year-old running around killing other five-year-olds. Now, if he was a human being, I could, a, a, a fully human, right? Not, not human and God and sinless. I could maybe believe that. But, but Jesus... He, uh, he obviously didn't operate that way. Jesus came and he, he, he turned upside down our ideas of what power looks like. He turned upside down and backwards the way that we tend to think of things. You see, we think that the first is first and that the first wins. And he who dies with the most toys wins and things like that. But Jesus said, no, 
It's the last that are first. It's the, it's the least that are greatest. It's, if you want to be a leader, you have to be the servant of all. If you, want to be, uh, if you want to be great, you have to humble yourself. It's a whole new economy. It's a whole different way of living that Jesus has brought to us. And we, as God's people, really need to get a hold of this higher vision and understand a lot about, like, what does this gospel mean? It means that you and I can walk in a very different way. And we can also let go of our typical means to uh, gain power and influence against others. Lord, we just pray that you would help us. Help us to be your church, God. Help us to understand this higher vision of, of who you've called us to be, what you've really done and what the whole process of redemption looks like, that, that we've been redeemed, we have been bought back. And that means that, uh, that we are no longer our... our we no longer belong to ourselves, but, but we've been purchased by you and not by cheap stuff like silver and gold, but by your own blood, that you gave everything on our behalf so that we might have life and that we might have an abundant life. So Lord, we, uh, we just pray that you would uh, guide us, that in our everyday, in those places where we get in the flesh and we struggle and we, we revert back to other things, keep us mindful. We pray that your spirit would would, would witness with us and, and, and would minister to us, and, and, that, and that, God, that you would heal us and change us. Uh, God, we want to walk this world like you did. When we see you and we see the, the accounts of the gospel, we see that people were flocking to you. They were coming to you. They, 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 they couldn't even stay away because of, of what was going on, and, and we just pray, God, that the churches would be that as well, Lord, that, that we would look different enough, that we would that we would love well enough, that, that people would understand who are outside of that, that, that something is going on inside, and, and they would have a desire to get in and to hear your word and to be changed by you. So, Lord, we just, uh, we just say that in our own strength, there's no hope, but with you, all things are possible. And so we commit ourselves and our future and this new year to you. Lord, may we walk in all of the good things that you have for us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.